Have you heard some of the great insights from guests on Gangry the Podcast? Insights like... I've never had an editor throw an idea at me to write anything before. I always ask myself with yeah, stories, and, and I, I had the same going question. through the Bokov's archives. It has a question mark in my Imagine head I'm on your shoulder and that you're wearing a GoPro. Here is uh, carefully and meticulously. Every single piece about the whole Bundy story was just so interesting. It was really weird one to write because every time I tried to outline... The story became a viral sensation, right? Like, it was the story. You cannot, you cannot do these stories or how we, uh, how we understand the world. They're how we share our experiences. Believe it or not, Gangry the Podcast is now in its ninth year. In all that time, the best narrative journalists have told us how they report and write their stories. You can still listen to every single episode. They're on our website, along with links to all of the stories and books that we've talked about. You can find it all at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with Abbott Kaler. Kaler is the author of four books of historical narrative nonfiction. More recently, though, she wrote the story how Sarah Gruen lost her life for New York Magazine and The Marshall Project. The story's about how the famed author of Water for Elephants was left broke and seriously ill after fighting for six years to free an incarcerated man she thought was innocent. Kaler is a close friend of Gruen. She realized Gruen was in a really dark place in 2019 that's when Kaler visited her friend in Nashville after a book promotion event. I was really, truly terrified. After that immediate crisis had passed, um, it was probably about in the winter, uh, a couple months later, or in the fall and the winter, I, I said, hey, you know, now that you're on the other side of this, you know, you're not 100%, but now you're on the other side of this and you're able to sort of at least look back on it with some reflection and have some perspective. Why don't we, why don't we tell your story? Would that be cathartic for you? Kaler says it was cathartic for Gruen to talk about what she had been through. And the story got a lot of traction when it was published on March 24th, giving more attention to the case of Charles Murdoch, the man Gruen is trying to free. This was definitely a different type of writing for Kaler. She's made a name for herself as a New York Times bestselling author of historical narrative nonfiction. She's done so under the name of Karen Abbott, we actually talk about the name change in the episode. She became hooked writing historical narratives when she started researching some family lore, which took her back to Chicago in 1905. Um, my grandmother had told me a story that her, um, her mother and her mother's sister had emigrated from Slovenia in 1905, um, and the sister took a trip to Chicago one weekend and was never heard from again. So I was always really intrigued and haunted by this bit of family lore, and I began looking into what was going on in Chicago in 1905, what kind of forces were converging that this, my, you know, my, um, my great-grandmother's sister would have disappeared. Uh, and it turns out um, that <laughs> I found something much more interesting. Her first book, Sin in the Second City, is about two sisters who ran a famous brothel in Chicago in the early 1900s. Her book, Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy, is about four women who worked undercover during the Civil War. 
and her most recent book, The Ghosts of Eden Park, is about a bootleg king in Cincinnati and a shocking murder in 1927. As usual, I've linked to a lot of Kaler's work on the website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Abbott, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Uh, I've I've wanted to talk with you about about your 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 writing uh, for quite a while, especially your your historical narrative nonfiction um, books. And then just last week, I feel like maybe a week and a half ago, you had that piece that came out uh, about Sarah Gruen, um, the, the fiction writer most known for her novel Water for Elephants. And that piece was simultaneously published by New York Magazine and the Marshall Project. And I was hoping, I, you know, I read that and I was like, oh, I want to talk to her about that as well. Um, sure. So can you tell me a little bit about that piece? Yeah. Um, um, as, I, as I mentioned in the article, Sarah is a, a very old and dear friend of mine. Uh, we met when we were both aspiring writers before either of us had published a book, probably around 2003. Um, and, uh, and had just, you know, um, once Sarah hit uh, the big time with Water for Elephants, um, she she, you know, had always been sort of a private person. Um, and I think she never expected that level of fame and um, exposure. Uh, and it was very um, disconcerting for her ways, very exciting, of course, you know, she was thrilled to have had her book reach such a wide audience and be so beloved. Um, but it was also scary for her in a lot of ways. And um, as I write about in the piece, she started getting weird overtures and, and people asking for things. And, um, people uh, being overly familiar and people doing outright creepy things as well. Um, and, uh, and she sort of uh, really stayed close to the people who knew her before, um, before she had published that book. So, so that's, that's the sort of origin of our friendship. And, and so what, um, then, then what happened uh, with her that ultimately was the, the kind of the reason that this piece had to be written, I guess. Well, it's, it was such a long ride. Um, and, uh, you know, she, Sarah's a very empathetic person, um, a very generous person. Um, I, I, I write about in the, in the piece and, um, you know, this, this man who wrote to her, uh, he, he actually did have a connection to water for elephants. His grandmother was named Lottie, Lottie Bell. His daughter is actually also named Lottie. Uh, and Sarah had based one of her characters, Lottie the Aerialist, on Murdoch, Charles Murdoch is the prisoner's name, on his grandmother. Uh, and um, once she, Sarah sinks her hooks into something um, that she's passionate about, she is dogged and relentless um, and didn't, was not going to let it go. And, you know, at first it seemed like, hey, this is an admirable thing. And, and nobody expected it to go on for six years. Nobody expected it to eventually take the toll it took on her. Um, but in the beginning, it was just sort of like, wow, this is a really um, generous thing you're trying to do for this man. And, and, um, and then, of course, it just spiraled out of control. When did you, uh, when did you realize that you wanted to, that you wanted to, and I'm assuming Sarah was fine with you writing um, something about what she had gone through? Well, I think the height of her health crisis, um, was actually when my last book came out, uh, the, the uh, Ghost of Eden Park was published in August of 2019. And, um, you know, I had been worried about Sarah in the, in the weeks and months preceding this because she was not communicating as much. She wasn't answering her phone. Um, and I, I was like, well, I'm going to be seeing her soon. I'm going to check in on her in person. 
Uh, and so I had a, uh, happened to have a book event in Asheville um, and, you know, went to stay with Sarah and, um, and she was really not herself. And um, our mutual friend, Jocelyn Jackson, who's a, a really great novelist as well, um, had also been there for a book launch and warned me. And she just said, you know, she's, she's herself enough to be aware of how badly she is breaking. And when I saw her to it, I, I was really, truly terrified that she, um, some sort of um, uh, the Bartonella and the encephalitis that she was suffering from had permanently injured her brain. Um, and so after that immediate crisis had passed, um, it was probably about in the winter, uh, a couple months later, or in the fall and the winter, I, I said, hey, you know, now that you're on the other side of this, you know, you're not 100%, but now you're on the other side of this and you're able to sort of at least look back on it with some reflection and have some perspective. Why don't we, why don't we tell your story? Would that be cathartic for you? Um, would that help you in some way? And, um, and, and she said it would. Um, and of course, also, she's still invested in having Charles Murdoch freed from prison. Um, so any publicity that she could also keep drawing uh, to his case was, was also in her, in her uh, uh, interest. And that's what she also wanted to do. I'm uh, I'm really curious about what it was like because I you interviewed her quite a bit. I'm assuming is that correct? Yes. Yes. So so, what is that? What is that like? Right? Because I I I feel like interviewing um, a, a close friend is entirely different than interviewing somebody that you really don't know that well. It was very. Uh, I had never done this before. I never interviewed a friend, especially about something so uh, um, so personal. Not only so personal, but so traumatic in many ways and volatile. Um, and it was, it was hard because I knew the, the points that might upset her. Um, and I had to tread very carefully in ways that I would not have tread necessarily, uh, had I not known her. Um, and she, of course, you know, told me to shut the recorder off at times. And, um, and I respected that there were things that she spoke to me about off the record that I had to respect. And, um, and, uh, it was just sort of, um, making sure that the story, uh, was authentically reported you know it was it was um trying to be as objective as possible but uh how objective can you possibly can you can you achieve 100 percent objectivity when you're interviewing somebody that you've known and loved for you know nearly two decades had you written much in first person before because this is in some ways there is first person in this piece right because you you acknowledge early on that uh that she's a really close friend of yours yeah um, not, not to that length and not about anything. So, uh, so I guess personal, <laughs> which sounds strange, you know, I've written in the first person, but not about anything so personal, but I mean, when I've written in the first person before, it's been my, my research journeys for my nonfiction books and what, what interests me in history and what are the, what are my personal, uh, you know, history fetishes <laughs> for lack of a better word. Um, I've never written about anything um, this personal. Uh, and uh, it was it was also difficult for me too, because I'm so used to putting my efforts and energy and imagining myself as somebody else, even somebody who lived hundreds of years ago and instead. Um, um, and, and it was quite a different experience. What, what was different about it? What, what was it like? Um, you know, I had to be constantly aware of um, not only how my friend was, how I was portraying my friend, and I wanted to make sure I was true to her character, um, but also, uh, you know, <laughs> how am I coming off in this piece, to be perfectly honest? And I, at one point, Sarah said to me, 
um, you know, I'm so worried. I'm so worried. And, and this is so personal. And are, are we doing the right thing? And I said, well, obviously, in the end, that's up to you. But, uh, you know, if if you look bad, I look bad, you know. <laughs> so uh, so I just try to reassure her with that, that, you know, if if um, that, that I had a vested interest in and in sort of being as honest and um, upfront about things as I could, I really, I really wanted a level of transparency. The most transparency I could offer as somebody who, who was definitely not wholly, wholly objective. So obviously the interviews um, with Sarah is a big, there's a lot there, right? But obviously you did more, more reporting yes. than that. Can you, can you tell me like how much other reporting went into uh, pulling this together? Yeah, that was another thing. I haven't done straight reporting in quite some time either. I mean, I've just been doing history for for quite a long time. Before I, I started writing books, I was a reporter in Philadelphia for six brief years. And um, it was sort of a return to those days and, and uh, trying to find people who didn't want to be found and asking questions that were uncomfortable. Um, you know, I had to Diane Spence, who was one of the witnesses in Charles Murdoch's case, um, had some uh, mental health issues that were relevant to her testimony. You know, was her testimony uh, valid and um, and truthful? Because you know, she she really um, was suffering from delusions and and uh, schizoaffective disorder, as her daughter and mother told me. And it was quite a difficult thing to call up her mother and and um, her stepmother and her daughter and and talk about um, the mental health issues and and sort of the problems that she had been having and how they might have affected her during this this whole trial testimony that she had to give that put Charles Murdoch behind bars. How long ultimately did it take you to pull all of this together? Oh, wow. Well, I started interviewing Sarah. Um, my first interview with her was right before COVID, actually, um, February of 2020. Um, and of course, I had wanted to go back and see her a couple of times, but but that wasn't possible. Um, not only, uh, you know, Sarah especially is somebody who is super high risk for for contra uh, contracting COVID. Um, but I talked to her, you know, we talk every day. Um, I interviewed her on the phone. She sent me all of her files. I mean, she just had it, it drop boxes full of files um, that she sent to me. So a lot of it was just sort of sifting through the work that she had already done and piecing it, it together in a way that was as concise as I could make it and as readable as I could make it and something that the average layperson who doesn't know much about case law could follow. I'm assuming you probably didn't do hardly any traveling at all to the report. No, for I mean, I couldn't. I, I wanted to go see Charles Murdoch. He's, you know, still in prison in California. I really wanted to go see him and talk to him. That wasn't possible. We exchanged letters um, and, and spoke that way. Um, I, you know, I wanted to try to go down and see uh, uh, Diane Spence's family. <laughs> uh, a bunch of people I would have loved to have gone seen, but um, I had to do it all pretty much by, by phone and email. Did that... Um... Was that difficult? Uh, in terms of just getting people to respond? Or? I think a little bit there, but also I'm thinking from a narrative standpoint, right? Yeah. When I'm out interviewing, if I'm out doing anything that's this in depth, right, that has any narrative elements, I want to be able to see where the people are and I want to be able oh, to yeah. get details like that. So were you able yeah. to do that at all or, or no? No, it's it's so true too, because of obviously there's also so much um, nonverbal communication is obviously so huge too when you're, when re you're reporting. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was, it was something I wish I could have done. I, I think that if it, we hadn't been in COVID times, I would have tried to track down Dino DiNardo, mm. <laughs> who was the other big witness who was somewhere in Canada, uh, that, that, um, he's, he's a necessary piece of, of the case. I think I would have tried to find him myself at some point and just trounced around Canada looking for him. I know you said it had been a while since you had done this type of reporting. Did, 
did you enjoy it? I did. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> I wouldn't want to do it full time again. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I start, I now have a preference for speaking to dead people, <laughs> you know, uh, dead people don't always do what you want them to do, but they also like, don't really give you that many problems. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so it was a nice change of pace and I'm really glad I did it and I had fun doing it, but it's definitely, uh, I, I'm eager to get back to history. I know you mentioned on your website that you've gotten a lot of feedback from people who read the story. And I remember just seeing it. I saw just on Twitter alone, at least like 15 or 20 other really big national reporters who I love to read, who are sharing the story and, and telling people to read it. And you said you've gotten a lot of feedback and, and but also questions about the piece. Yeah. Um, what are, what is some of the feedback that you've gotten and what's it been like? And, and what are questions that people are asking after having read the piece? Yeah, so I, I actually even put something on my website about where I'm starting. And if anybody else has questions, I'm happy to answer them and, and, and add them to the website. Um, but but one of them was, which I was kind of shocked at, was did Sarah give consent for this interview? <laughs> and I just sat there thinking, no, actually, I called up New York Magazine and said, hey, I just wrote a really long in-depth piece about my friend. How about we just publish it tomorrow without her knowledge? You know, <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, she I, wouldn't be I'm your friend anymore if you did that. <laughs> well, I mean, it's kind of like, first of all, obviously, I wouldn't do that. Um, but second of all, uh, a New York Magazine would say no. <laughs> we can't publish a piece without somebody's knowledge. There are fact-checking uh, structures in place and, and uh, Marshall Project's the same thing. And I just was kind of shocked that anybody who deals in the realm of books or 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 anyone who even reads <laughs> newspapers would think that something could be published without comment and involvement from the, the person who the story is about. Um, so that was a that was my I think my most shocking one and other ones I, I understood because there were a couple things that had to get cut for space and the primary one was well what what was she doing this on her own for why didn't she go to the innocence project why didn't she trust organizations social criminal justice organizations whose job it is to take these cases on and try to pursue them to their to their ends um, and the answer to that was uh, that uh, Murdoch himself had actually reached out to the California Innocence Project they took on his case. Um, but they could not find Dino DiNardo, the man fl floating around Canada, or Diane Spence, who is, as far as I know, currently in a uh, mental institution or psychiatric hospital. Um, and, uh, and, and they dropped the case because they couldn't, they couldn't find those pe two people, and that's what was necessary was to get comment or new evidence or new testimony from them. Um, and so Sarah was actually able to do more than the Innocence Project was able to do by finding Diane Spence. Um, so that's 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 the answer to that. Did anybody uh, ask you like how is Sarah doing now? I mean, because obviously this took you probably a while to write and and pull together. Yeah, um, a lot of people are expressing well wishes for Sarah, um, which I really appreciate. I pass on all of the those um, comments to her. She really appreciates them. She um, this the story has been really cathartic for her. She's really relieved to have it out there. Um, she's sounded better to me in the last week than she had in the previous month, maybe. Um, just sort of uh, she's writing again. <laughs> um, she's she's really getting back to herself. Um, and, and it's really sort of amazing to see. And I, I really hope she continues on this upward trajectory, obviously. Yeah. And then I think you mentioned on your website that even she felt like the interviews were cathartic in a way, right? I mean, I've done interviews with people who've been through something um, traumatic or, or whatnot. And, and, and they tell you that going through that actually makes them kind of work through the process itself. 
Yeah, she, I think that talking about it and, and having it out there um, now, she feels like the burden isn't on her alone anymore. Other people are aware of Char Charles Murdoch's case. They can try to pitch in and pick up where she left off or at least continue the advocacy. Um, and, and she was, you know, it was sort of a relief to talk to her about it. Um, you know, she had been reporting it in spurts. Oh, I got this email and this is what's happening with Chuck and this and that, but to actually sit down and piece it all together, I think was something that, that her brain needed, um, in order to sort of move on and, and process it and, and, uh, and, um, sort of get to the next level with it. I the one thing I noticed that at first was a little bit confusing to me, but it ran simultaneously, right. With yeah. New York magazine and the Marshall project. Right. Um, how did, what, uh, how did that happen? Why, why did, why did that happen? Well, I had a contract with the Marshall Project first, um, and they usually try to partner with um, with a sort of more uh, mainstream publication. Um, and uh, they, you know, I, a friend of mine who is a reporter, uh, old colleague from Philadelphia, um, Benjamin Wallace, he's actually a great reporter and writer in his own right. Uh, he said, "Why not try New York Magazine? It might be the perfect fit for them." And it turns out they were they were interested, um, which. It seemed a good fit to me too, because they write often about literary and publishing communities. I've been talking with Abbott Kaler. She recently wrote the piece, How Sarah Gruen Lost Her Life, for New York Magazine and The Marshall Project. We're going to take a short break. When we return, I'll have more with Abbott, specifically about her four books of historical narrative nonfiction. We'll be back in one minute. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangare the Podcast is brought to you by the digital journalism and sports media programs at Fairfield University. Digital journalism is designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to succeed in today's quickly changing media world. Students take courses in everything from big data storytelling to podcasting to narrative journalism and more. Sports media is a new major that prepares students to work anywhere sports-related content is produced. Students take courses in journalism and broadcast communication. They can also take courses in public relations, film, and more. To learn more about the digital journalism and sports media programs, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I've been talking with Abbott Kaler, who recently had the piece, How Sarah Gruen Lost Her Life, published by New York Magazine and The Marshall Project simultaneously. Kaler has also written four books of historical narrative nonfiction. Most recently, her book, The Ghosts of Eden Park, was published in 2019 and instantly became a New York Times bestseller. I should note that the books that you've written so far have the author's name of Karen Abbott, yes. correct? <laughs> yes. And now you're Abbott Kaler. Yes. Can you say, do you want to say anything about that? I know I you do. mentioned it on your um, website, so. <laughs> no, it's actually a funny story. I, um, uh, it was about 2013, a reader wrote to me and said, um, do you know if you Google yourself, it says that you died in 2010. And I had no idea. Um, <laughs> this is why you should never Google yourself, people. You don't know if you're, you've been dead for a few years. Uh, and it was kind of like a, I don't know how to explain how weirdly disturbing it was. Like someone had to report that or I don't know what the process was for that to happen, but it creeped me out. Uh, and I had also been turning 40 at the time and, um, 
and you know was was thinking about changing my name too for some family related stuff i ended up going to court in new york i changed it um but my publishers were reluctant for me to have a, a new name and until um I, I, I really sort of uh, became adamant about it. Um, I, this is another part of the story. I found out that I'm donor conceived, that my father was actually a sperm donor. Um, and I just found this out right at the beginning of COVID, right when I was writing the story too. And uh, it was sort of like the last break I needed to uh, make with my past and sort of just go on with a new name. And, and, uh, they were, they were okay with it at this point. So my, my books from now on will be under Abbott Kaler. Okay. And I know you have one that you're working on, uh, and maybe it's going to be coming out soon. We'll talk about that in a little bit. The first book of yours that I read was send in the second city. And I think I told you before we started talking about it, I realized this morning that I read that book because I was reviewing it for the Columbus dispatch when I was a reporter <laughs> there. And it's a very good review. Um, I loved it. A great I should deal. go back up and look at it. Although again, I'm still afraid to Google myself. So. <laughs> right. Um, I can email it to you because I actually <laughs> saved a, a PDF of it. Um, you've written for, Sin in the Second City is set in Chicago in the early 1900s. And all four of your books are set. Um, they're, they're historical um, narratives, right? Um, the most recent one is The Ghosts in Eden Park, uh, uh, which uh, was published in 2019. Um, what is it about reaching into the past for book ideas that, that, that you love? Oh God. Well, I, you know, I didn't, I, I guess I should tell the story of how I got into writing about history in the first place. You know, I was coming from a reporter background, um, was never much interested in history beyond just a superficial level. Oh, that's interesting story or whatnot. Um, but my grandmother had told me a story that her, um, her mother and her mother's sister had emigrated from Slovenia in 1905. Um, and the sister took a trip to Chicago one weekend and was never heard from again. So I was always really intrigued and haunted by this bit of family lore. And I began looking into what was going on in Chicago in 1905, what kind of forces were converging that this my, you know, my um my great grandmother's sister would have disappeared. Uh, and it turns out um that I found something much more interesting. I found an article about Marshall Field Jr., the son of the department store mogul. Uh, he got shot in a brothel called the Everlay Club that was run by these two mysterious Southern sisters. Uh, and it was the most lavish brothel in the world. And you had to pay $50 just to get in the door, which of course is a huge amount of money in 1900. Um, and of course, this is terrible, but I forgot all about my missing ancestor and immediately was fascinated by these, these two sisters. And that became Sin in the Second City. Um, and it wasn't just the the sort of sexiness, the allure of this brothel, but um, the progressive era, which was such a fascinating period in American history. And when you think about it, you think of Ida Tarbell and Standard Oil or Upton Sinclair and the FDA, and nobody ever thinks, realizes, you know, there was this entire nationwide movement to shut down red light districts. Um, and this really amazing brothel was at the heart of it. Uh, and so that really started my love affair with history. And, and, uh, and I just took it from there. Were you still working as a, a full-time reporter when you researched and wrote that book? No, I actually had moved from Philadelphia to Atlanta um, and was like, well, I guess this is the time to try to start writing uh, books. Um, and I actually wrote a novel. It never was published. It's in the drawer. It will remain <laughs> in the drawer. Everybody should thank me that it's remaining in the drawer. Uh, but, but, and, then I, and then my grandmother told me the story and I went off onto, onto nonfiction. Your book, uh, The Ghost in Eden Park, uh, again, was published in 2019. Um, what's that book about? 
So that's about uh, the uh, world's most successful bootlegger, George Remus, um, who, uh, who in 1920 found a loophole in the Volstead Act. Uh, and the loophole was, you know, with, uh, with a physician's prescription, you could buy, sell, acquire, distribute alcohol for quote unquote medicinal purposes, um, which of course uh, he, he was not um, distributing alcohol for medicinal purposes. And he was just a, such this fantastic character. He spoke of himself in the third person. Um, he was remarkably brilliant. Um, he made about anywhere between 20 million and $40 million within the course of a, a year and a half. That's it not adjusted for inflation. That's in 1920 money. Um, and he was actually one of the inspirations for Jay Gatsby, reportedly. Um, and he just, he was sort of this quintessential Roaring Twenties character. And um, I don't think I've ever cross a, come across a more interesting person in history, to be honest. How did you learn about him? Uh, if, if you, have you watched the show Boardwalk Empire? I, unfortunately, uh, I haven't. Yeah, well, if you need a new binge, it's um, <laughs> it's a, it's a really good one. Uh, well, it was from that. I, you know, I usually get my ideas from these archives and libraries, but I got this one from TV. Um, he was a minor character on Boardwalk Empire, uh, and he was used for pretty much comic relief. You know, he would come in there and speak of himself in the third person. He'd say, "Remus sells good liquor. Remus has the best. You got to come to Remus." And of course, people like Al Capone was like, "Ain't you Remus?" We <laughs> You know, sort of made for comic relief. Um, but I, I was like, is this guy based on a real character? Or are they just, is this some composite? What's the deal here? And I looked into him and of course he was a real character. And I think his life was much more dramatic um, than anything uh, was portrayed on Boardwalk Empire, especially the love triangle that develops between George Remus, his glamorous wife and a prohibition agent, uh, the prohibition agent who actually put him in jail. When you're when you're doing when you're researching these books, you, you said you like to talk with the dead people. Um, how how do you these these types of books take so much research and archives? I, I've done uh, I did one archival piece for SB Nation way too long ago, and it was only eight thousand words, and it was by far the most amount of time I think I ever spent actually working on a piece. Um, what do you how do you how do you start um, the reporting and researching? Well, I was very lucky in this in this case to have found the trial transcript. Um, and uh, as soon as I, I mean, with the, let me just talk about how exceedingly rare that is to find a trial transcript in the 1920s. Usually, they're they're lost or they're discarded. Um, but luckily, this one was preserved. I went up there. I xeroxed every single page. It was 5,500 pages. It took me about a week <laughs> of sitting in this in this Yale University Law Library for for an entire week. And it had the most amazing details. You know, one of my favorite details from the from the trial transcript was that George Remus did not wear underwear. Um, and in 1920s, this is a cause for great alarm. You know, it was the sign of an unsound mind, like, you know, going commando was a huge problem, apparently. Um, and there was just so many other great details. And it actually uh, provided me an opportunity to do something that I, I don't think is often done in nonfiction, which was to write a whodunit. Um, and it's sort of somebody gets shot on the first page and then you don't know who it is. It's sort of a Chekhov's gun thing. You don't know who it is until later on when the, when the gun reappears again. Um, but, but it really allowed me, you don't know who's going to get shot. Um, any of the characters are crazy enough to shoot each other. Um, and it kind of, you know, hopefully keeps you guessing until you get there. I mean, I do love, um, uh, the ghost of Eden park because I am an Ohio boy. So I felt yes. a little bit of connection um, there and I'm a, I was born in the southwest part of Ohio, so um, oh, his uh, old stomping grounds. His old stomping grounds. That's right, closer to Dayton, not really Cincinnati. But um, do you? I mean, we, 
when you're when you're reporting like in all four of your books, are you spending it in archives? I'm assuming spending it in archives, not just like sitting on your computer and looking at newspapers.com, which is a pretty fantastic website in and of <laughs> itself. But but like what what's what's a typical day like when you're actually in the throes of, of the research of that. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Well, once I had those 55, you know, speaking just for the ghost of Eden park, once I had that uh, 5,500 page trial transcript, it actually took me four months to go through the entire thing and make an outline. Um, and the outline was about 85,000 words, which was almost the length of the book itself. Um, and I, I'm a big outliner. I, I, I think outlines are so key in nonfiction. By the time I finish one, I pretty much have a blueprint for the book. Um, including dialogue, including details, including setting the scene, you know, what weather was that day? What was the weather like that day? What kind of cars would have been in the area? What kind of music might have been playing? What kind of smells, ambient smells and sounds were in the air? Um, and, and there's always room for surprise. You always, always might come on a, uh, a newspaper article later on that sort of adds another element or a little detail or something that's changed the focus or a bit of dialogue that's revelatory. Um, but, but the outline is, is really where the, the big work comes in. What's when you, whenever you're doing something like this, what's the biggest challenge? Uh, let's say, what was the biggest challenge in, uh, you, you got that great trial transcript, but were there any challenges that, that, that showed up as you were trying to, you spent those four months kind of building that outline? You know, there was so much, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you'd rather have too much material than too little, but there was so much material that was kind of like. Uh, how many tangents I could go on and are they worth going on? And if I do go on them, how long should they be? And I learned actually the hard way that you really have to know what your tangents are and stick to the pre pre um, prescribed, you know, size you want them to be or length you want them to be. When I was researching Sin of the Second City, you know, I was looking into early 1900s contraceptive methods, you know, as one does when they're writing a book about prostitution. Um, and I ended up going on a tangent and maybe researching it for about six weeks. It was so fascinating. And I was, you know, all the different sheepskins and the douches and this and that. Uh, and then I write about it and I, and it's probably, I put in like a good two paragraphs. And then by the time the book is published, I think maybe there's a line and I'd wasted six weeks of my, of my valuable deadline time, um, sort of go, writing something that went nowhere. Uh, and uh, so I'm, ve I'm very careful about that now, but, but that's one of the challenges is sort of, are people going to find this as interesting as I do? And, and is this going to confuse the narrative? And in nonfiction, also the names, there are so many names um, and you have to decide when you name people and when you don't. And, and that's always a challenge too. This is a question I ask a lot of people who do this kind of historical nonfiction research. And, and I say this as if I look back at like my last five or six episodes, they're all people who did historical narrative nonfiction books. Um, so I think I'm getting a new kind of niche focus for the show. No, um, why not? Uh, so there's so much there's so much good narrative history. out. There's so much out there. Right. And so yeah. how do you organize all this stuff as you're collecting it? Right. So then when you do sit down to write, uh, you're able to find it and do all the stuff that needs yeah. to be done, right? You know, especially, I, I'm glad you asked that question too. You can see my office right now. You can see how tiny it is. And I used to, in the olden days, the analog days, have these filing cabinets where I would just have hundreds and hundreds of files all indexed. I'm, I'm actually like uh, in my, I'm actually not a neat freak or anything like that, but when it comes to my research, I'm pretty meticulous. Um, but I can't do that anymore. There's too much papers and I don't have enough space. So I started using Scrivener 
which um, maybe you use it, but if, or I'm sure some of your listeners use it, but it's an invaluable tool if you want to keep all of your information in one space and it's searchable um, and you have different folders. So it's kind of like basically a, an index, uh, an index system filing cabinets on your computer. And, and I really found that to be invaluable when I'm creating my outline. I've tried using it before and I, for whatever reason, it just, I, I don't, I don't think I get it. <laughs> I need someone well, to I don't, train I me. never draft on it. Like I don't write on it, but it's, you, you had a hard problem with it, even just organizing. You couldn't, I don't know. I'm very bad at organizing anything, which is why I ask this question all the time in case I ever <laughs> want to do something. Well, if you ever want a Scrivener, you know, I, I don't know all of the bells and whistles. I use it just for the very rudimentary uh, organizing files I use, but I'm happy to, I'm happy to show you my tricks anyway. Have you found that you've gotten, I mean, I'm assuming this is the answer is yes, but have you found that you've gotten easier at doing all of this? You know, it was probably the hardest for you on sending the second city, um, yes. you know, as you're getting better, the more you do it. Yeah. Well, in sending that second city, I had, um, I had a lot of material, but not nearly as much as I had even for say the civil war book, liar, tempter, soldier, spy. I mean, you know, just the fact that it was about the civil war was <laughs> created volumes, uh, in and of itself, let alone, you know, the, the details of my character's lives. Um, but yeah, it's, it's sort of, you know, you, you get better with every time you, you, um, you learn to be more efficient with how you plot. Um, I think I'm sure the same is true of novelists, you know, you just sort of get a better feel for what the narrative should look like and, and the tools you need to create it. Your next book uh, is titled, uh, then came the devil. Um, yes. and actually on your website, you have the prologue and some historical photos, which is kind of cool. Um, can you tell me about this book? Yeah, I'm very excited about this book. I've been wanting to write about the story for, oh God, almost seven or eight years now. Um, but there was a group of exiles right before, you know, the turmoil was starting in, in Germany. Uh, Hitler was coming to power. Um, and this group of exiles, uh, well, actually it was a couple. The first, the first exiles were just a couple who decided to build a utopia, a private utopia in the Galapagos Islands. Um, and so they go over in 1929 and they start doing their thing. Um, but soon enough, word gets out because there were a lot of American explorers um, coming uh, constantly to the Galapagos Islands, which I did not realize. You know, apparently in the 1930s, if you had money, everybody else was suffering from the depression. But if you had money, <laughs> the cool thing to do was to get a yacht or build your own yacht or buy your own yacht and sail down to the Galapagos and start collecting specimens for zoos and aquariums and your own personal um, satisfaction and collection. Um, the, some of the huge American names, Vanderbilt, Astor, um, the guy who owns Seabiscuit, Charles Howard, <laughs> there, are, there are tons of them, Barrymore, John Barrymore, the actor, um, and they all got tangled up in this, in this, um, these uh, exiles. Um, more exiles came over from Germany, and when all was said and done, um, there were th uh, three people dead and two people missing. Wow. Um, and the Americans had to sort of sift through the pieces, but it's such a creepy and fascinating story, and I thought during COVID it was all the more relevant, um, that sort of idea of isolation and what it can do to people. When, uh, when can we expect it? That's a good question. I, um, it is, I'm guessing in 2024. Yeah. Oh, I got, um, I have to wait that long. <laughs> <laughs> I also made the mistake of trying, starting a novel during COVID, um, which, which I'm, I'm trying to finish just because I'm, I'm too far into it to give up now. I have no idea if we'll ever go anywhere, but it's been fun to, it's been fun to, to flex a different part of my brain and just see what happens. So are, but, are you balancing the writing of the novel with the research for the, yes. yeah. Yeah. It's uh, and my brain is like, no, I can't do two <laughs> things at once. 
So, well, I'm, so it's a bit hard. I'm sure. I'm sure it'll get there at some point in time, uh, and hopefully by 2024, I'll have a, a book that I can read, and maybe ha- even have you come back on the podcast again. I would love that. <laughs> yeah, Thanking the that. Devil is, is going to be a lot of fun. Um, uh, there's a character in particular who I'm, I'm fascinated with. Her name was the Baroness. Well, she called herself the Baroness, um, and uh, and she she is one of the devils. I think a few people could be called devils in the Then Came the Devil title, but she's one of them. Well, Abbott, it has been so great talking with you. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thank you. It was a great time. Thanks for having me. I've been talking with Abbott Kaler. She's a New York Times bestselling author of historical narrative nonfiction. She recently wrote the piece, How Sarah Gruen Lost Her Life for New York Magazine and The Marshall Project. As usual, I've linked to that piece as well as Kaler's books on the website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the Integrated Media Labs at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the digital journalism and sports media programs, as well as the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.